Well, as we noted already, we are going to be resuming our study of Paul's letter to Titus. So turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, and we're going to look at this important transition that happens after Paul comes to a conclusion on his qualifications for elders and transitions into a new section, but a related section, a section dealing with false teachers. And we're going to begin a, a, a couple-part study of, a, of an important section beginning in verse 10 of chapter 1 going through to the end of verse 16. But the title of our, our first sermon here in this new section is called A Clear and Present Danger. And as we see in Titus chapter 1, there was a clear and present danger for the churches that had been just recently established on the island of Crete. And Paul does not fail to warn Titus about this danger. Now before we get into it, I want to summarize some of the warnings given by another important figure in church history, and that is J.C. Ryle. He has a little booklet entitled, Warnings to Churches, and in that booklet, he summarizes eight symptoms of false teaching, and some of these symptoms we will even see uh, in our text here, but J.C. Ryle writes in the 1800s dealing with the, the problems of false teaching in that day, and he gives these eight symptoms which I think are important for us as we think about the danger of false teaching and how to identify it in our own day. The first one he gives is this, a symptom of false teaching. He says, there is an undeniable zeal in some teachers of error. Their earnestness makes many people think that they must be right. So the sincerity with which they teach or the passion that they have, the sacrifices that they make to advance their cause is often interpreted as, as if that means that they are right, and Ryle says that is not the case. Sincerity, passion, and sacrifice are not synonymous with truth. Secondly, he says there is a, a great appearance of learning and theological knowledge, and many think that such clever and intellectual men must surely be safe to listen to. They're great orators, they know how to use theological language, uh, but they mean different things subtly uh, by what they say. And, and that learnedness, some of them, even with, with very high degrees, advanced degrees in philosophy and theology, can be the impression that they must be true. But as Ryle says, that is not the case. Education, learnedness is not synonymous with truth. Third, he says this, there is a general tendency among them, to completely free and independent thinking today. Many like to prove their independence of judgment by believing the newest ideas which are this tendency always to try to introduce new ideas to the gospel, new ideas to the apostolic witness. That certainly was the case in Paul's days we're going to see is there was this, this effort to syncretize the gospel that Paul had preached on the island of Crete with other ideas to come up with new forms. And that penchant for novelty and new forms is, again, uh, is not synonymous with truth and, if anything, is an automatic indication of error. Number four, there is a widespread desire to appear kind, loving, and open-minded, and many seem half ashamed to say that anybody can be a wrong or a false teacher today. In other words, because of our desire to, um, to, to be inclusive and kind and, and to be welcoming and accepting that, that we on our part can even embrace those who are heretical, and certainly those who are heretical can also have this kind of open embrace of anything and anyone, and that only leads to stray. There must be, as we're going to see this morning, there must be exclusion be a silencing of error. Number five, there is always a portion of half-truth taught by modern false teachers. They are always using scriptural words and phrases, but with unscriptural meaning. In other words, the tendency uh, is for us just when we hear certain terminology uh, to believe that they're being biblical. But the reality is that Satan is an angel of light, and so the greatest threats that we face from him 
are not going to come in the form of atheism or direct attacks on the gospel. They're going to come from this form that takes on the, the likeness of gospel, uh, the likeness of biblical Christianity, but means something very different underneath. Number six, there is a public for more sensational and entertaining worship. People are impatient with the more inward and invisible work of God within the hearts of men. And this was already coming to a, a very much to, to the to the forefront, even in in uh, Ryle's day, and certainly in our day, that that the there's this tendency to want to have emotional driven to make Christianity something that is so externally felt and visible. And certainly in our day, that is the case. But even in Paul's day, it was. And as we're going to see as we work through this section, that those who are threatening the church were, 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 were advancing a kind of Christianity, a version of, of quasi-Christianity that focused on externals. And that is always a danger. Number seven, there is a superficial readiness all around to believe anyone who talks cleverly, lovingly, and earnestly, forgetting that Satan often masquerades himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven 14. We've already touched on that a little. And then number eight, there is a widespread ignorance among professing Christians. Every one who doubts him is called narrow-minded. There is that the idea of judgment today in, in Ryle's day, in our day, and even in Paul's day, is shunned. We dare not judge. We dare not distinguish. We dare not denounce. That is not the way we must always be accepting. And that, of course, is a, a, a terrible approach to dealing with the threats that are faced. J.C. Summarize, Ryle summarizes this well when he says this, All these are especially symptoms of our time. I challenge any honest and observant person to deny them. These tend to make the assaults of false doctrine today especially dangerous and make it even more important to say loudly, do not be carried away with strange doctrine. End quote. And so it's to that topic that we turn because Paul himself turns to this topic of false doctrine. It is something that is is a constant threat in our day, and it was something that was a threat from the very, very beginning. And so let's look now at first or at Titus chapter 1, and we will start reading in verse 10, and I'll read all the way to the end of the chapter, to verse 16, and we'll get this context now for what, what Paul was dealing with as he considered the situation on the island of Crete and his instruction for Titus as he gives Titus instructions for how to counter that threat. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, Nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. No God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Now we have to remember how Paul has, has brought Titus to this point uh, in his letter. And to the qualifications that Paul said in verses 6 to 9. In fact, in verse 5, he said to Titus, Titus, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Paul wants to see those churches which were experiencing chaos to be brought to a point of stability and sound health. And the way that that would be accomplished 
would be by the institution of eldership of teams of elders for every church there on the island of Crete. But those elders couldn't just be any kind of men. They had to be a certain kind. And so in verses 6 to 9, Paul describes what Titus was to look for as he found men to appoint for these churches. He begins in verse 6 with domestic qualifications, how the man leads in his own home. That is an indication of how he will lead in the church. In verse 7, he then describes six disqualifying characteristics, disqualifying not in the sense as forever, but certainly at the moment, a man who would manifest those vices in verse 7 would not be able to bring order to the churches, and so they were not qualified for leadership. But then in verses 8 and 9, Paul provides that list of qualifying characteristics And we define those seven in this way. These men, these candidates, had to have generosity. They had to be hospitable. There needed to be among them nobility. That is, they needed to love what was good. There needed to be prudence, this wise use of the mind. There needed to be impartiality, objectivity, and justice. There needed to be godliness, godlikeness. They needed to be devout. Sixthly, they needed to to show self-control over their own bodies. And then number seven, they needed to be faithful. And that concept of faithfulness we saw back in verse six as it related to the man's faithfulness to his covenant with his wife. And now Paul here at the end of that section, at the end of uh, the, the, the section on the qualifications in verse nine, focuses again on faithfulness But now, rather than holding fast to his wife, we see that this is a man who holds fast to the truth. Now, let's look at verse 9. And when we studied this verse a couple of weeks, I'm trying to get into it. I want to come back to it because it's so crucial in understanding the role of elders and how they are qualified. Faithfulness. It's holding fast to the faithful word. And what's interesting here is the characteristic that Paul lists that deals with both moral character and skill, as we're going to see in verse 9. It begins by dealing with moral character, that is, fidelity, holding fast to the faithful word, but then moves into skillfulness. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, Paul also emphasizes this idea of skill, but he states it there very simply that the qualification that you must look for in men equipped and ready for eldership is that they are able to teach. But here, to Titus, Paul goes into much greater detail, a whole verse, and he spends the longest amount of of time or the, the greatest amount of words on this particular characteristic. And there's a reason for that. There was a clear and present danger. And as we've already read, that was spelled out in verses 10 to 16. Back now at this qualification in a little more detail. Holding fast, what does that mean? Holding fast describes a strong attachment to someone or something. It it, it refers to unwavering, uncompromising adherence. In many ways, conceptually, like I said, you can equate it back to being a one-woman man. If you look at it in the domestic sense, this is this uncompromising loyalty. But now, not just inside the home, you must look for this quality in the man, in the church, as it relates to something specifically, his relationship, his loyalty to the word. This idea of holding fast, for example, is found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, where Jesus says this, No one can see masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to or he will hold fast to one and despise the other. Same word is used there with the word devotion. Speaks of loyalty. You cannot serve, Jesus says, both God and wealth. In this level, you cannot have divided loyalties. Now, what was the the candidate to hold fast, to cling to, to be devoted to? And Paul simply says it's, it's the word. He must hold fast 
the word. And this is a reference to a content of teaching. Often Paul, when he wanted to summarize the gospel and the whole apostolic testimony, that which became our New Testament, Paul would simply refer to it as the word. And that's what he does here. This is This is the the whole body of doctrine that Paul and the other apostles were were tasked to spread, to preach, as they would go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And Paul describes this word, this content, this knowledge in two ways. He first calls it faithful. faithful. It's faithful because it's true. This message, this apostolic message, corresponds to reality as God has determined it to be. It is also in accordance with the teaching. Notice that that prepositional phrase that is used there to describe the word. And by stating it that way, Paul is saying that this message that elder candidates and then elders, once they become elders, are to continue to do, they are to cling to... They're to be devoted to that content of doctrine which measures up to a certain standard. It's not just any kind of doctrine, not just any kind of theology, not just any kind of teaching. It has to measure up to teaching. And that there is a a reference to that apostolic standard. And it's important that, that that Titus recognize that the, the only way that order and stability and good health would be brought to the churches there in Crete would be if men were committed to a message that was identical to the apostles. They were not to be inventors. Paul doesn't ask them to be creative. They were to simply repeat what they had received. This This concept of fidelity to uh, an already delivered message was not just emphasized to Titus, but to Timothy as well. In fact, it's a a very prominent theme when you look at the pastoral letters. You find it everywhere. Constant reaffirmation and emphasis. Hold fast to the truth. The things that you have heard and seen in me, these things pass on to other faithful men. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, we read these words. And notice how strongly Paul states this. He says this, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, that's his, his doctrine, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul indicates that he received that by revelation. They're not words he himself invented, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. If anyone advocates anything different than these things, he is conceited, he is arrogant, and understands nothing. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 13, Paul gives this this charge to, to Timothy. He says, retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Retain standard. And this was so important for Titus to recognize that in the the short period of time from when the apostles began to deliver this message to the time when he's there on Crete, responsible for the ministry there, nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. And we must recognize as well in our day that the doctrine that we teach the, the doctrine that we must explain, nothing has changed. Everything that we must teach must hold to the standard, must conform to that standard which was once for all delivered. Now when we come back to Titus 1 verse 9, we now see the, the reason why that kind of loyalty was so Now, Christians still that when there is this fidelity to apostolic teaching, then there will be ability. Then ability is possible. And, and Paul expresses this in two ways. First, notice this. There is a positive skill that is necessary. He says, so that this elder, this overseer, will be able both to exhort 
This is the positive aspect of ministry, setting forth doctrine in that positive way of of teaching, of admonishing, of correcting, of growing, all for the sake of edification. And then there's also a negative. He says both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute. This has the idea of exposing error so as to reprove and to silence so as to demonstrate the error of some kind of so-called teaching, as well as to bring the influence of that error to an end. The candidate for eldership had to demonstrate this this ability in, in these two ways, both positively and negatively. Paul is going to mention the same positive and, and negative Uh, ministry a little bit later on. If you look at chapter 2, verse 15, we see these two words used there as well. As you come to the end of chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says to Titus, these things speak and exhort. There's the positive idea. There's the positive aspect of ministry. The same word is used there as it is in 1 verse 9. And Reprove. There's that negative aspect, the idea of silencing, of showing error and bringing that error to an end. These things speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority. And now notice right at the end of of verse 9, coming back to verse 9, why is this so important? Because there's an, an an existence of a certain category of people. He says right at the end of verse 9, refute those who contradict. There will be those, as there was on the island of Crete, of those who speak against, who teach contrary to the apostolic standard. And it's now those that Paul is going to take up in verses 10 and following. Before we get there, let me read a text from John Chrysostom, a homily, a sermon that on this text back in the 4th century in the uh, city of modern-day Istanbul, Constantinople in those days. And, and he, he explains in this quotation why it is so important that elders have this ability to hold fast to the word by advancing it through exhortation and defending it through refutation. He says this, There is need not of pomp of words, but of strong minds, of skill in the scriptures, and of powerful thoughts. Do you not see that Paul put to flight the whole world, that he was more powerful than Plato, a Greek philosopher whose philosophical thinking had had great sway in the world, that Paul was more powerful than Plato and all the rest? He who knows not how to combat the adversaries and to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and to beat down reasonings, he who knows not what he ought to teach with regard to right doctrine, far from him be the teacher's throne. It's a very important uh, statement that Chrysostom makes. That it doesn't matter how nice the the candidate is and even how moral his life may be, if he does not have the ability to think through Scripture, compare it with what is being taught, to stand against that which deviates and to put forward true doctrine, far be it from him to take the teacher's throne, the pulpit. Now, just a few summary thoughts then that help usher us into this next section. Why does Paul emphasize this ministry skill so strongly in verse 9? Just some thoughts here to to think of. Number one, an elder can influence others through the power of his moral conduct. That isn't essential, but it's not enough. enough. It's not just enough to have a good life, to, to live morally. There's more to it. Teaching is central to the health and the order of the church, and elders must be skilled in delivering 
this teaching. Thirdly, elders must possess an accurate understanding of and an unbreakable commitment to the apostolic standard, to that which we now hold in our hands as the New Testament. And opponents of the church also employ words, so elders must have the skill and the courage to confront and to correct. Now, Christianity is merely summarized as a lifestyle. And certainly Christianity is a lifestyle, but that is an effect. It's not the substance of Christianity. The substance is the doctrine. And no matter how a life looks, if it lacks the substance, it is not true biblical Christianity. And that's why Paul puts such an emphasis here. He would not be happy if Titus just went and found volunteers whose lives were respectable in the community and had good families. That's not what will keep the churches strong. It's not what will bring order. Those things must be there, but they must be there. That that lifestyle of integrity is there as a result of something more substantive, something more definitional, and that is the truth. Now, with that said, let's now jump into the first part of this section on this clear and present danger on the island of Crete. We begin this section by an identification of these first 10. Paul says this, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Paul begins here with language that is very vivid and urgent. This isn't just a hypothetical. Paul isn't writing to Titus about what someday may arise. This is something that is very present. It is very real. And he describes them in four ways. First of all, he describes them as rebellious men. That word for rebellious refers to those who refuse submission to authority. We actually see this word back in verse 6. Remember that Paul said that a candidate who's qualified for the office of overseer must have a certain kind of children, and those children are not those who are, quote, rebellious. Same word is used here as is used back in verse 6. Paul says there are many rebellious men, those who speak against authority. And he's not referring now to the home, he's referring to those within the church. And these are those same people who Paul has just referenced at the end of verse 9 when he refers to those who contradict. It's the same idea now carried over into different language. They are rebellious men. They will not submit to the apostolic teaching. Moreover, they're defined as empty talkers. Empty talkers. That term, that description refers to talk that is pointless. In fact, you must understand here that that term isn't just referring to, to talk that is immature, talk that is juvenile. No, there is a, an, an incipient danger to this talk because even though it is speaking of God and things of God, it is inherently unedifying, and that can never be the case. Whatever is true about God, whatever is true about his will, will always have an edifying effect on the listener. But this kind of talk delivered by these rebellious men who are contrary to the teaching of the apostles Their talk was not beneficial. Thirdly, they're described as deceivers. Those who intentionally deceive through misleading arguments. These are those who are not just mistaken, not just using wrong terms accidentally through no intent on their own. They are those who know what they're doing. They know they are contrary to the apostolic witness. It's not that they think that they're following in line, but just adding some, some wrong terminology or using terms the wrong way, and, and they're somewhat innocent to be better trained. Those who know they are going against the standard. There's one more characteristic that is given of these, these false teachers, this clear and present danger in Titus. 
on the island of Crete, Paul describes them as especially those of the circumcision. This this description is in the direction of the strongly Jewish nature of this, this influence. Now, it's important to understand that what was going on here was not a pull to take the Christians back fully into Judaism. That isn't how the, the Judaizers of that day worked. It wasn't that they were, they were going back to, to a strict Judaism. Instead, it's better to understand that there was this movement in the early church because so many of the first Christians were Jewish in nature. They were familiar with with the law and and the the prophets, but these were 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 Jews influenced also by Greek philosophy and various various forms of of Greek thought and what they sought to do and we can read this in Paul's other letters. What they sought to do was to syncretize the apostolic teaching with a somewhat of a return to the law, to the Mosaic law, but also incorporate into it elements of, uh, of what's called Platonic dualism. And they sought to bring this, this new kind of quasi-Christian thing into, into influence in, in the churches. Paul is going to talk more about this a little bit later. He's going to talk about Jewish myths and the commandments of men in 1 verse 14. And in 3 verse 9, he'll talk about foolish controversies and and genealogies, and and strife, and disputes about the law. So there was this heavy Jewish emphasis. And and notice this, again, as I said, the teaching doesn't come from anti-religious origins. That's often how we think our greatest threat will come, where it'll come from. It'll come from the atheists, or those who are of a completely different religion. And that simply doesn't jive with what we read in the New Testament, that the greatest threats were always those that came from within the church of those who sought to syncretize the apostolic message with something that was, was very respected in the culture, very respected in religious terms, and in this case it was Jewish legalism. Very much a, a heavy religious respect that was given to, to Judaism, and so... And so by virtue of that, those false teachers were able to have considerable sway. Now, when we come back to the text, we, we see not only the, 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 uh, the identity of these false teachers, we see now their activity. And this is particularly insightful and gives us wisdom here to know how to assess the activity of false teachers even in our day. Paul says this in verse 11, verse 10. He identified them in verse 10, and now he he describes their identity. Verse 11, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Now notice what Paul does here, Paul commands a very strong, decisive, and uncompromising approach to these teachers. He uses language here that many today would find appalling. And yet, this is what Paul hands down to Titus, and by virtue of Titus, hands it down to us today. Paul says, they must be silenced. Literally, that verb referred to the gagging of an animal's mouth or, or a, a person's mouth. They must be stopped. And figuratively, as, as Paul uses it here, he, he says they must be prevented from speaking. There, there's no place here in Paul's mind for an approach that says, well, we'll agree to disagree, we'll move on, or we'll agree to disagree and see how things work out or will agree to disagree, and, and perhaps over time they'll, they'll finally come to see things the right way. Paul has no patience for those who are directly contradicting apostolic teaching. They must be silenced. The, the verb that Paul uses there when he says they must be silenced is one that commands a very strong reproach, uh, approach. He's saying that there is no other alternative. This is a, a moral necessity. They must be be 
silenced. Now, how were they to be brought to this silence? We can go back to verse 9, for example, and we see that Paul said that the elders who were chosen to lead the church, they were to engage in these ministries of both exhortation and refutation. This would be accomplished by those teachers who would be selected for the churches and would engage now in this ministry of both stating what the truth is, teaching what the truth is, and also directly and publicly refuting and condemning those who disagreed with the apostolic message. As I said, it's there in verse 15 of chapter 2, where Paul says to to Titus himself, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, let no one disregard you. But it wasn't just that the false teachers were to be reproved. He, Paul even goes on at the end of this letter, as we're going to see when we get into chapter 3, in verses 10 and 11, we have a, 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 a solution that Paul brings in here to those who would refuse to submit to the ministry of exhortation and refutation. Notice chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. And this specifically has to do with this this speaking contrary to the apostolic standard, opposing the apostolic standard, refusing to submit to the apostolic standard. Paul says in verse 10, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When we get to chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, we're going to find out something that we are aware of, and that Paul prescribes a process of church discipline that is actually shorter than what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, as, as you're dealing there with moral sins and, and a, a brother caught in a, a, a trespass, that there are to be these four stages. First, one-on-one confrontation. Then take two or three. And then it's to go to the church. And if the, the man still does not submit and repent, then he is to be excommunicated, disciplined away from the fellowship. But here in Titus, Paul indicates that there is a special category of sinners. He even uses the term, they're in sin. They are sinning. But there's a special category for those who do not submit to and uphold the apostolic message. Notice the speed at which this process of church discipline is to be enacted. Paul says, verse 10, reject, reject a factious man after a second warning. Far less time, fewer steps are prescribed here for those who are engaged in false teaching. That is how important the the doctrine is to the church, that those engaged in proffering what would be contrary must be dealt with far far more quickly and far more decisively than other kinds and categories of sin. Coming back now to verse 11 of Titus, as we continue to look at the the activity of these false teachers. Notice that Paul says they must be silenced because, now here is, here is the reason, and here we get into their activity. They are upsetting families, number one. They are upsetting families of their activity. This is what they are up to. That verb for upsetting is actually the same verb that is used in John chapter 2, verse 15, to speak of Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers. So in a, in a literal and vivid sense, it has the idea of, a, of, of kind of a, even a, a, a violent overthrow of those tables. Now, here in this context, the, the term is used more figuratively to speak of disturbing the family or undermining the family. And, and it raises a lot of questions. What was going on here that these false teachers were disturbing or upsetting families? There's been several suggestions. Some have suggested that 
that this was some kind of teaching that was, was seeking to disband the family, as if to say the family is, is, is no longer needed. So it was this anti-authoritarian approach. That probably is, is not the case because of uh, many arguments against it. It doesn't appear that they had fa- the family unit uh, in the suggested that it was perhaps something to, merely to do with a, a consequence that families were being divided by this. So that's probably closer to it. But it's important to remember this. Instruction in those days did not take place in buildings like we enjoy today. For the most part, apart from the, 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 the weekly gathering on the Lord's Day that would take place in some location, that the instruction that would take place would be in individual homes. It would be in, in more private settings of just a family or a couple of families together hearing from an elder, hearing from Titus, hearing from Paul, uh, what would be sound doctrine. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 20 to verse 20 that, that Paul states that he not only publicly proclaimed the word of God, but he did so from house to house. Probably this is a reference here to the more secretive nature of these teachers. They're upsetting families because they're not getting up on Sunday mornings to address the whole congregation together. They are instead addressing small units, going from house to house, proffering their contrary doctrine. And as a result, families were being upset. They were being overturned. And when small units are overturned, that certainly affects the health of the entire church. They were upsetting families. That was the nature of their activity, going from house to house and integrating or, or introducing that which was contrary to the apostolic. We see the nature of their activity. We also see the manner of their activity. How were they doing this? Some have said, well, false teachers are those who just live by a, an evil example and influence through that. Well, that is the case, but more specifically, they disrupt and, and bring harm to the church through their teaching. Notice this middle clause here in, in verse 11, teaching things they should not teach. Teaching things they should not is literally how that phrase is, is rendered. Paul specifically says there is teaching that must be done, and there's teaching that should not be done, must not be done again, the nature of the language here is, is that this isn't just a recommendation, but Paul is kind of, not just ought not to be taught, but must not be taught. And Paul is, is arguing here for the There is an error. There's correct doctrine and false doctrine. There are things which must be taught and things which must not be taught. Paul is not one to say, well, you know what, it's, it's approximate. That's okay. This is all just nuanced. That's okay. We can, we can permit it. Now, Paul is very, very clear that there is a true message and that there is a false message. And the church needs elders in order to make this continually clear to the congregation. There is both sound doctrine and that reality That ability to distinguish must always be held up, must always be explained. This was Paul's passion here in these verses. Finally, we see the motivation for this activity of these false teachers. It is for the sake of sordid gain. Paul taught that on the one hand, it was right to support those who pastored. In fact, if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, Written around the same time as, as Paul writes Titus, he says in chapter 5, verse 17, that those who work hard at preaching and teaching, same terms used there, are worthy of double honor. They're worthy of compensation. However, these false teachers were capitalizing on that, that truth and the Cretan believers' lack of discernment. So it appears that these believers in the church at the time recognized, 
hey, that if someone spiritually teaches me, I ought to share uh, of the blessings and, and, and share with that. And these false teachers were, were gaining a foothold and were starting to receive even compensation from church members for their teaching. They were motivated by this, by this reality. But again, this was not to take place. Paul had no place for this. They were not to receive any compensation from the church. Their only, their only, uh, the, the only fate that was 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 and that they repent. And again, this is why qualified elders were needed. And and this is a direct reference back to verse seven, where Paul says that. Those who would be fit to lead in the church cannot be fond of this kind of sordid gain, compensation that comes as a result of improper motivation. Now, as we pull this all together, let me give you some final implications to bring it home to us where we're at and understand how we deal with the reality of false teaching in our day. Number one, acknowledge the primacy of sound doctrine. We, we must continually recognize that Christianity is first and foremost about doctrine. It's not about a lifestyle. The lifestyle is a consequence of the doctrine. And we must never, uh, we must never switch the order of that reality. The doctrine comes first and the lifestyle flows out of that. The moment that we either cancel out doctrine or invert the order is the moment when we will be susceptible to false teaching. We must acknowledge, let me even push that a little bit further and say in your own life, not just in the church, in your own life, how you understand the Christian walk, it must be doctrinal. And you must put far more emphasis in priority on understanding the right things before you can possibly recognize the way to apply those things in your walk. Acknowledge the primacy of sound doctrine. How much do you love doctrine? How, how, that priority, how does it show and manifest itself in your thinking and your actions? Number two, recognize the threat of false teaching. This is not just a, a clear and present danger for Titus on the island of Crete. 2000. This is something that is ubiquitous. It exists Wherever the truth is, Satan, in his effort, will come to undermine and corrupt that truth. Recognize the threat of false teaching. And as you recognize it, understand that it's not just a threat for certain people. It's not just a threat for the church at large. It's not just a threat for certain kinds of Christians. But realize that false teaching is always at your own door, knocking In some way, Satan is trying to corrupt your thinking. And if you're not aware and vigilant to that reality, you will fail to be able to take every thought captive and make it. You must acknowledge and recognize the threat of false teaching even in your own life. Number three, realize the vulnerability of the home. These false teachers were upsetting the home. They were small units, and from that came the corruption to the whole church. And let me just say this, that... That, that often there can be this idea that, that it's here at the church where we have to be careful when we gather together or on this campus at this address. But what goes on in my home, that is a different story. What kind of books are there? Uh, what kind of programs I listen to or watch on the TV? What, what sermons I, I hear? What music I listen to? Christian religious music? That, that doesn't really matter there so long as when I'm at... 13245 Roscoe Boulevard, everything's fine. Not at all. Understand where it begins. It begins in, in the home, in that, in that very private setting. So think of when you family about truth. Are you careful there to make sure that your words measure up to the standard? Or do you allow in those private conversations all kinds of error and falsehoods to, to have their place, to get an airing? That is not healthy. May I even say this, even in the context of Bible studies, those are often ways where errant ideas will get a platform and begin to spread. 
No, you Bible study leaders, those who are shepherds of those groups, you have a responsibility to to care for the people in your group by making sure that what will be stated and affirmed and, and what will be prayed and what will be held to will always be consistent with the Scriptures. Number four, applaud the refutation of error. Applaud it. Again, we are so convinced by the world at large that that to speak out against error is just unloving. And so if there happens to be, for example, a church discipline over over, uh, someone who is teaching false doctrine, you should be encouraged by that, and you should encourage others by that taken seriously. And when you see error refuted, you should be glad and give thanks to the Lord. This is what you should hunger for. That that error be suppressed and the truth be proclaimed. Applaud the refutation of error. And finally, reject the soliciting of false teachers. I have been surprised from time to time to talk with people and to hear the kind of radio or, or, or television ministries that they'll give money to. And you'll ask, why do you support that radio preacher or that television preacher. They don't teach the truth. And the answer is, well, I just find that they're entertaining to listen to, or I just need something on my car ride or my commute, and the person's on at the time. And you know what? He asks for money, and I think, hey, he, he entertains me, so I'm going to send money. No, resist the soliciting of false teachers. Do not have any part, whether that's financially or any other way, do not have any part in the furtherance of their error. Reject it. Reject it decisively. Acknowledge the primacy of sound doctrine. Recognize the threat of false teaching. Realize the vulnerability of the home. Applaud the refutation of error and reject the soliciting of false teachers. Very important applications for us to take, and we will continue on this study of false teachers in the weeks to come as we continue to work through to verse, the end of verse 16, the end of this chapter. Let's ask the Lord to uh, give us better understanding and application of this truth. Father, as we come to a close this morning and reflect upon the words that you have you've given to us through the Apostle Paul and through that of Crete, we do thank you for, and for the words, the warning, the reminder. And we ask that through this reminder, you would give us an increasing hunger for the truth, that you would give us a a greater sensitivity to where our thoughts wander from that truth, deviate from that clear standard. We pray that we would even think of the church and and our Christian lives much more about this truth rather than just about activities. We pray, Father, you'd Give us this love for the word that would give us in our own lives this ability to exhort and rebuke, refute those. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a friend who's on a path toward error. Give us a sensitivity and love for them that would enable us to speak up. Father, we are thankful for how many have been involved in our own lives to teach us this truth and to give us that knowledge from your word that would enable us to grow and to avoid that which is harmful. We pray you'd increase that even in our own midst. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.